This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Hello, hope your Monday's started well. Taking a look at the avocado industry on the Country Hour today, in particular, what this what this proposed ban on dimethoate could mean for avocados. Dimethoate as a post-harvest dip, it's a key treatment for some growers to prevent Queensland fruit fly and to get their fruit into Western Australia. And as you've been hearing on the Country Hour, the APVMA is proposing to suspend the use of that pesticide. Today, you'll hear from the National Avocado Industry about what impact it could have on avo imports into WA. Also coming up on the Country Hour, there are all sorts of oils available on supermarket shelves. It's not just olive oil, peanut oil, veggie oil these days. You've also got avocado, macadamia. And one grower in the southwest of the state is looking into producing walnut oil. It's got a, a rich flavour, but it, it is also a subtle f- flavour. But it's beautiful to cook with, up to about 160 degrees, virtually anything. You know, we're, we're branching into another area where, you know, people can use our walnuts in another capacity. You'll hear all about that after a check-in with the News Headlines and Bureau of Meteorology at half past 12. And if you'd like to get in touch with the program today, you can as well, 0448922604. And I would really love to hear from you today around Western Australia's relationship with Indonesia. What do you think Western Australia could be doing to nurture its relationship with Indonesia? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Let me know. Because it's been said that Western Australia needs to invest in its trade relationship with Indonesia now or risk playing catch up in the future. That was one of the key findings in a report tabled in WA Parliament which looked at the state's bilateral trade and investment relationship with the Republic of Indonesia. Almost 90 findings were made and 20 recommendations were given in the report touching on the importance of the relationship and ways for the state to foster it. Robbie Gaspar is the president of the Indonesia Institute. Robbie, has it been a relationship that Western Australia hasn't been investing enough in to this point, do you think? Um, you can say yes and no. You know, we've had a good relationship with sort of like China where it's been a very transactional relationship like we dig, we sell, they buy. And so we haven't really had to sort of look to Indonesia to build those relationships. But um, I think, you know, with things going on geopolitically, with Indonesia's also rise becoming a top four economy by 2050, that we need to invest in that relationship. We need to invest in it now if we're going to see the, the fruits of our sort of labour or that sort of that work, you know, five, 10, 15 years down the track because other countries and, and states are doing it. And so we need to sort of be, be starting to do it right now as well. And it is an important relationship, not just looking towards the future in Indonesia's growth, but if you look currently in, in terms of petroleum, iron ore, uh, wheat as well, Indonesia is, is Western Australia's largest market for wheat. So hugely important for our grain sector. What do you think in Indonesia Institute's point of view, 
needs to be the focus for Western Australia in looking after that relationship and investing in that? Where does that investment need to go? I think that investment needs to go in developing those people-to-people links, um, developing that relationship with Indonesians, like that understanding, you know, developing, for example, is it increasing the amount of kids actually learning the language? In schools, you know, we say developing that language literacy, you develop that cultural competency and you can really get to understand Indonesia from their point of view. You know, like I know from my own experiences from being in Indonesia for eight years, once I developed that language, you know, literacy, that I was able to speak the language, I'll be able to develop deeper, more sort of better links or, you know, relationships with, you know, my Indonesian friends. You know, you get to understand Indonesia and their intricacies. And I just think, you know, we need to start developing those people-to-people links more because it's going to help us with developing those closer business-to-business relationships later on down the track. And that's a really important thing, isn't it? The people-to-people links. It's not a relationship that can be business-to-business because of the cultural kind of side of things as well. So um, the, the people links, and you mentioned the investing in the language, and that has been a recommendation in this report for the state government to provide greater support for Indonesian language programs in schools and university, also for bilateral education and training opportunities, things like study exchanges, internships, and working to provide job-ready Indonesian immigrants for the WA labour market. So, you know, potentially a way for an increase in, in training and education, which can also help fill some of the skills gaps in Western Australia. Uh, how, how important do you think that bilateral education and training opportunities could be for the two countries? Oh, it's, it's massive. I was just at a um, function this morning and the big thing they spoke about was Indonesia, you know, wanting to upskill and train their people. That vocational training, that uh, those skills training is huge and there's a massive demand for it as well. And I think we're perfectly placed strategically, you know, geopolitically to be able to help Indonesia, be able to sort of, you know, upskill their people as well. Is it either up in Indonesia, you know, through our sort of relationships up there, or also with our sister-state relationship with East Germany, you know, East Java is a, a state of over 45 million people. You know, we have a sister state relationship with them, which is over 30 years old. Or is it them coming down to, you know, WA and experiencing Western Australia and developing that relationship with Western Australia as well? So um, there's so much potential opportunity up there. And um, yeah, but it's for us to be able to get up there and sort of be able to spend that time up there and just really understand what they really need. And um, I think this report has been fantastic. You know, some really good sort of recommendations and findings. And you know, I really commend the state government, Peter Tinley and the committee for, you know, the work they've done in putting together this report. On the country hour, it's 11 or 12 past 12. And I'm keen to get your thoughts on Western Australia's trade relationship with Indonesia. Are we doing enough to improve or to foster that relationship do you think the text line zero double four eight nine double two six zero four did it surprise you to hear that indonesia is forecast to go into the top four economies in the world by 2050 it surprised me but it is a really interesting report tabled in parliament last week looking at this relationship and the potential benefits 
to be found. So what do you think Western Australia should be doing to or should look to to nurture a relationship with a country that's just so close to us geographically and potentially so significant economically? That text number again, 0448922604. Robbie Gaspar, as president of the Indonesia Institute, how important is it for WA and Indonesia to foster that trade relationship, do you think? I think, you know, our economies are, are complementary. You know, we have the lithium, they have the nickel, you know, and then we can sort of, you know, they've got a massive push for EVs. You know, they're also developing the largest green industrial zone in the world. You know, they've got a target to have 2 million EV motorcycles on the road within the next two years. So there's that opportunity to develop those partnerships, you know, the, also with the grains, you know, sending grains up there, but also developing through the Catalyst program, Grains WA, they're, they're actually having a, where the Indonesians come down and they sort of upskill down here. So developing more of those partnerships down there, not having a one-way transactional, you know, like we sell, you buy. It's almost like, how can we help you to become, you know, you're going to be the fourth largest economy by 2050. How do we work together with you to help, you know, you're going to get there a little bit sooner as well. And we actually sort of, you know, like sort of work with your success and also, you know, have some along that ride with them. What do you see are the first steps which need to be taken by the, the WA government in better investing into this trade relationship with Indonesia, Robbie? It's come out in the report that we need a dedicated probably trade commissioner based in Jakarta just for Indonesia. Indonesia is such a large economy. You have one trade commissioner looking after all of ASEAN and ASEAN has a population of 680 million people for one trade commission to look after all of ASEAN is, is, will be quite difficult, a challenge. So, you know, one of the recommendations that was tabled as well was that having a trade, dedicated trade commissioner in Jakarta to be able to really push, you know, Team WA, you know, like to be able to really develop those better people to people links, really focus on Indonesia and that trade relationship as well. And what about if you were a business owner in Western Australia looking to do business, whether it be to export to Indonesia or just considering your options for the future, how should businesses in WA be thinking about Indonesia and, and taking steps to work with Indonesia? I think definitely look towards Indonesia. Indonesia is such a, it's a fantastic market. It's, you know, it's a difficult market to do business, but it's, it's a place where you need to spend time. You know, you can't go up there once and just think you're going to do business and you go up there, spend your time. How do you say, you know, like roll your sleeves up, get your hands dirty, meet plenty of people, you know, use the trade trade office, WA trade office, there's some fantastic people there with some great skill sets, you know, have a lot of really good contacts and they can hold their hand along that process as well. There's some, you know, you've got the business councils here, you've got the Indonesia Institute, ask plenty of questions, take your time, develop those relationships. And Indonesia is all about sort of being humble, being resilient. And also, you know, there's going to be plenty of ups and plenty of downs, but the ups will far outweigh the downs. And from our point of view, Indonesia is such a fantastic market. It's a growing market. And we feel for business looking there, look at, you know, go there because I think, you know, like if you do spend the time there, the rewards will be there later on down the track. Robbie Gasper, thank you for your time on the Country Hour. Thank you, Michelle. He's the president of the Indonesia Institute and just speaking to that report tabled in Parliament last week on the bilateral trade and investment relationship between WA and the Republic of Indonesia. The report made 20 recommendations and pointed out the need for WA to invest in its relationship immediately or risk playing catch-up in the future, particularly when you see that Indonesia could become the fourth largest economy in the world by 2050. Highly recommend reading it. Uh, it's 
it is relatively long, but it is very, very interesting. It's up there on the WA Parliament website. But I wonder what you think should be done or could be done and whether you see any potential for your own business to get into the discussions and, and trade with Indonesia people. Uh, commodities 0448922604 is the text line. On ABC Radio WA, you're with Michelle Stanley for the WA Country Hour. It's 17 past 12. How do you like the idea of turning your straw stubble into green fuel on your farm? Almost all of the world's hydrogen is currently produced from fossil fuels, but one Australian company is working to turn biomass like straw stubble into molecules like hydrogen. Hygiene Renewable CEO Louise Brown explains how this process would work. At Hygiene, we build with biology and we re-engineer organisms to be able to take in biomass residues, or in particular the sugars in them, and convert them into green products. And the focus that we have is on making green hydrogen. So basically you're using microbes or, or sugar or carbohydrates and turning that into hydrogen. How, how do you do that? Yeah, it's really fascinating. Any plant-based material out there or biomass contains sugars or carbohydrates. And what we can do with organisms such as bacteria is engineering new enzymatic pathways that can take those sugars and convert them into molecules such as hydrogen. So we introduced the genetic code from a, an organism that we know does this well, like green algae, but it, algae is difficult to get to industrial scales or domesticate, but we can take that blueprint, put it into an organism that we can better work with in an industrial setting such as bacteria, and use that as the machinery for converting the sugars to hydrogen. Uh, you said in, in your talk recently that 99% of hydrogen comes from fossil fuels. Where does the other 1% come from? And is this a new idea or is it something that's been looked into for the past few years? Yeah, it's probably even more than 99% from fossil fuels. And I think a lot of what we hear about the hydrogen industry is that it's a clean molecule, which it is to use, but we never look at how it's produced. And today, you know, 99% is come, coming from fossil fuels, um, from steam reformation approaches. And the push is really to decarbonise green hydrogen production today. So we hear a lot about green electrolysis using large-scale renewables to feed green electrons into electrolyzers to make green hydrogen. So we're starting to see that enter the market. That's the, the small 1% that's continuing to grow. But we need to replace all the fossil fuel-derived hydrogen today. So there are other ways to do it, and we can do it biologically. What kind of energy could it produce yeah, today on farm, you can our hydrogen is very high purity, so you can couple it directly to a fuel cell, and that gives you power generation on site. So you can have a behind-the-meter solution using biomass residues such as straw stubble. So that straw stubble waste has valuable sugars in there, make the hydrogen, couple it directly to a fuel cell, and you've got power generation. Do you need huge amounts of that to produce energy? That's a good question from a volume perspective so a kilogram of hydrogen today is enough to power an average size home or it's equivalent to a gallon of diesel when you say an average size home is that for a day for a day um and as long as you don't have teenagers <laughs> is it something that's achievable that you, that you will see being used in, in the next decade or so yeah we hope so to us the focus is about 
decentralized manufacturing, starting to make molecules like hydrogen where you need them and when you need them, and to simplify that supply chain. So if we can have a, a localized production, we start to secure our energy needs or, our, or if there's a requirement for chemical manufacturing. Um, we don't want to be storing hydrogen or trying to move it around. It's a very difficult molecule to, to do that and we don't do it today. So we really need to find solutions where we can make it and use it on site. So what's next for you and your research? Next for us is to scale up production and take our technology out of the lab and into the field. So our focus is on our first pilot plant with a key industry partner to show that we can produce hydrogen at scale. But we look at other molecules as well. What else can we engineer into microbes that we can make green. So things like green ammonia is also on the horizon for us. That's Hygiene Renewable CEO Louise Branch. We're speaking with Eden Henninen. And on the topic of hydrogen, Woodside Energy is set to be approved to start clearing for its $1 billion renewable hydrogen plant in Rockingham. The company is planning to build a hydrogen refueler at its site in the Rockingham industry zone. You might remember, I think it was last August, the state government gave Woodside a $10 million grant to support the facility. So the project is around a refuelling station, sort of like the fuel stations you might already go to, but this time using hydrogen. By the end of next year, it's expected to produce around 235 kilograms of hydrogen each day with potential to scale up to 800 kilograms of hydrogen which would supply more than 50 vehicles. Over the weekend, the Department of Water and Environmental Regulation opened a two-week public consultation period for this clearing permit of just over one hectare of land in the city of Rockingham. So if you do want to add a submission, just search DWER Clearing Permit Woodside. 22 past 12 on the country hour and things are not going too well for some Australian sheep farmers at the moment. Prices for some lines are collapsing and predicted to get worse when the spring flush kicks in. That's when the new season lambs start hitting the market. How dire is it getting? Well, just last week in some Victorian sale yards, some sheep and lambs were sent to market and no one bought them. There were no bids. So the animals were put down at the yards. Here's Elders Bendigo Livestock Manager Nigel Starrick. Um, we are sort of seeing a few more lambs being left behind in sale yards than we would have in the past. I think quality assurance programs at abattoirs have probably lifted their standard of what's acceptable to come in. So we are seeing some small percentage of these older lambs that haven't quite made it or are a bit more unfinished. Um, being left behind in sale yards. What do you mean but being just, left behind? Uh, so if they're not good enough to be killed, if they're not meeting their quality assurance program, they're being left behind and being put down. At the yards? Yeah, the yards. Is yep. that, is that yep. something that you, you've seen a lot before? Not for a long time. Not for a long time. In drought conditions, we do, obviously. So we, we have seen it in the past, but probably last time we've seen it like this was 2016. That on the back of... Um, international global markets where there's a saturation of red meat and protein overseas is just having a big knock-on effect from there backwards. That's Elders Bendigo Livestock Manager Nigel Starrick who was speaking with Eden Henninen. It's 24 past 12 on the Country Hour. And on that topic, a lot of farm business owners are coping with more and more pressures these days. And in a lot of cases, it's the farm women 
who have to cope with a decent proportion of that stress, things like employees, variable weather, rising input costs, interest rates, changes to legislation and normal family stuff. So that's why farm business consultant Danielle England was asked to speak to a group of farming women in the Esperance region on Friday. She describes the current situation as sailing into a headwind. Yeah, I'm hearing that the sails are full and that we're just going flat out and we can't ever see a calm where we will actually feel like we're on top of things. And so today really was about how do we adjust those sails? How do we bring this boat that is our farm business back under control? We know globally that change is happening a lot quicker since COVID. We've also got as farm businesses a whole lot of supply chain issues There's a whole lot of marketing going on. And we're now running really big businesses that I'd call family corporates. So what structures do we need to put in place for us to allow those businesses and for our families and us to thrive within them? We need to make those businesses work for us, not the other way around. There's a lot going on. There sure is. And it's the reality is, is we know the business environment will continue to change. And if we're a corporate in one of the major cities, that change is going to be there. But we'll have a team of people around us that can support us through those changes. We won't try and do it on our own, especially with the, the business sizes that we are managing. You know, if you're small mum and dad news agency in, in Perth, that might be different. But if you're managing multi-million dollar businesses in a capital city outside of agriculture, you will have a really big support team around you. And I think for agriculture and farmers, we need to build that support team to make sure that we're doing well and we're looking after ourselves. And the other thing we've got going on is that's different to other businesses and we manage it really really well is the risk around climate and that natural environment be it the soils be it the bugs be it the weeds whatever it is so it's a really dynamic environment and sometimes we think if we're just managing the farm office that doesn't affect us but it actually does you know we're stressing about the cash flow We're the ones who are doing the audits, making sure we've got chemical inventory right. We're the ones that are booking, you know, or maybe not booking trucks in and out, but we're the ones that have got all those logistical aspects often of the farm coming through us, let alone we know it hasn't rained. We know that they've just found, I don't know, something in the back paddock that's not meant to be there. So given all of these considerations, How do businesses, and in particular women supporting farm businesses, how do they remain resilient? We chatted today about the seven pillars of resilience and for me that is really critical to just keep remembering that there are going to be, to continue to keep our resilience shield or our resilience veranda posts as I call them, all standing. You know, we might let one go, we might not, you know, let our health go, but it's important that we maintain our networks and that we stay true to our values and and what we want to do. So we've talked a lot today about not only understanding the farm farm as the farming production system, but we've also talked about um, business, how can we make the business side of things easier. It's about being important, particularly when you're a young family and you are just busy, you are seriously busy. 
about actually making that time for yourself and remembering who you are and what floats your boat and you know what fills your cup what gives you passion staying in touch with those girlfriends that are just so so important and yeah sometimes you might have to move into the farm business but do it on your terms do it on something where you can contribute it's not you're not just doing it because of expectation should you feel guilty about outsourcing some of those things i reckon we've been pretty good at females and females are often better than the males in the farming business around outsourcing because let's be honest we all love our cleaning lady and we i don't know about you but i fly her flowers and chocolates every christmas because babe i need you so we're really good at outsourcing whereas the blokes will often hang on to jobs for probably a bit longer than they need to you know we can get contract musters we can get contract sprayers we've got staff to do that depending on the size of the business um so for us it's about identifying those jobs that we really like and being able to outsource those others so danielle what do you, what are your top tips for women to reset their sales so they can I suppose it heads straight on into whatever it is the farm business has to bring. So it's about making sure you're aligned to your values. So if your values are around family time and having holidays and resetting that, we just need to make sure that we're not continuously moving at levels of stress, which happens during seeding and then harvest, and that we actually give ourselves time to come down off that stress high because otherwise that's really bad physically for us so as farmers i think and farm businesses got a lot of work to do in that area and i don't think we've handled that for everyone it will be slightly different for some people it's football for some people it's crochet group for some people it's just going to the gym in town it's a weekend away with the girls whatever it is that fills your cup it's so so important it's farm business consultant Danielle England speaking with Tara Delangraft after the Sepwa Ladies' Day in Esperance last week. It's half past 12 and Jonathan Beale is here with the news headlines. Jonathan? Thanks, Michelle. The WA Liberal leader says negotiations with the Nationals on the future of the opposition are continuing. The Nationals have proposed Libby Metham could become opposition leader in return for three spots on a joint ticket with the Liberals for the Upper House. The Liberals would also gain resources currently allocated to the office of the current leader, Shane Love. The federal government is being urged to do more to address problem gambling following the launch of a new self-exclusion register. Bet Stop allows people to block all Australian licensed online and phone wagering services from contacting them or sending marketing materials. Financial Counselling Australia says other countries are doing more to tackle problem gambling. And a new national park has been declared in the central Kimberley along the, na- the northern reaches of the Fitzroy River. The 220,000 hectare Boonaba National Park will be jointly managed by the area's traditional owners and the Department of Biodiversity. The Environment Minister, Rhys Whitby, says the area has environmental and cultural significance. More news, Michelle, at one. Thank you very much for that, Jonathan. You're listening to The Country Hour. Michelle Stanley along with you this afternoon. And before one o'clock, you'll head to Mushe to check in on the results of the cattle sale today. I believe numbers were down. And you were hearing before those news headlines as well that um, the sheep industry is... Well, it's not going too well for some Australian sheep farmers. Uh, prices are pretty low. And just last week in some Victorian sale yards, 
some of the sheep and lambs sent to market. There were no bids uh, and those animals were put down. And Bruce has been in touch on the text line 0448922604. Bruce says that goats are doing the same as sheep. They're going down in price as well. You can get in touch this afternoon, 0448922604. You'll also hear from the avocado industry very shortly to find out what impact this proposed ban of dimethoate, the pesticide, could have on avocados. That coming up on the Country Hour, but first let's head to the Bureau of Meteorology. Joey Rawson is along. How are things looking in the South Westland Division today, Joey? Yeah, hi, Michelle. Um, we have had a cold front move over the southwest of the state, uh, but that has headed um, out to the east and is currently in the bite. So through the southern districts, there's still a couple of leftover showers with that, and especially uh, from about Albany to Esperance, um, but that will be easing over the next um, you know, six or 12 hours. As we track on to tomorrow, we do have a, another really weak front that's going to brush the southwest coast, so um, only expecting a meal or two at tops with that cold front, Michelle. And then um, we have just a little bit of shower activity on the southwest on Wednesday. Again, not much in that, and it's a very similar story for uh, Thursday and Friday. Just some light showers around the southwest, and and not expecting much. We're under the influence of this high pressure ridge, which is um, keeping things quite settled. And it's just the south coast and southwest that's going to get a, a little bit of rain here and there. And in the north of the state, how are conditions tracking up here? Yeah, so uh, that's really settled. Um, you know, temperatures in the mid-30s around the Broome area and also around your area, Port Hedland. Um, but uh, one thing to note is um, as we do track towards uh, the weekend, some of those warmer temperatures are going to be pulled further south. So we're going to start seeing some northern temperatures around, you know, maybe a above 30 degrees, getting as far south as the central wheat belt. So things starting to warm up as we get towards the weekend, Michelle. That seems far too early for temperatures that high in the central wheat belt. It sure does. It's, uh, uh, yeah. Do you know but, how uh, long the, the, those warmer temperatures will last in that region? Uh, they'll certainly last um, through the weekend and then the next front will come through and cool things down. Right. Uh, and how about warnings around the state today? Yeah, we just have a, a coastal wind warning for strong winds uh, for the Esperance and Eucla coasts, Michelle. Thank you very much for that, Joey Rawson from the Bureau of Meteorology. It's 25 to 1 and Richard Hudson is along with the rainfall from the weekend. Richard? Yeah, so from 9am on Friday right through to 9am this morning, for the entire northern and eastern forecast districts, there was hardly anything at all. The top was one mill at Red Rocks Point in the Eucla district. And in the southwest land division forecast districts, to be honest, there wasn't too much more, particularly in the central west where there was nothing over a mill. In the lower west, Jinjin West had five and Swanbourne, so a suburb of Perth, had six mills. And then in the southwest, uh, Manjimup, Windy Harbour, Pemberton and Rosabrook all recorded five and a fair few places had between one and five. Uh, in the southern coastal region, Albany had between eight and nine mils, Chain Beach, eight, Erin Air 
11 mils. That was the most of anywhere in Western Australia for the whole weekend. Esperance had between 5 and 7. Pleasant Valley, 6. Tamar, 5. And the Duke also recorded 5. In the central wheat belt, there was no rain at all. And then in the Great Southern, there was a tiny bit around, but the most was 3 mils recorded at Franklin and Tunney. And that's it. Thank you very much for that. Now let's head to the avocado industry because it's bracing for the impact of a potential suspension on the pesticide dimethoate. You would have been hearing on the Country Hour, the chemical regulator, the APVMA, it's proposing to suspend the use of dimethoate as a post-harvest dip for fruit with inedible peel. Now, the avocado and mango industries currently rely on that treatment in order to bring fruit into Western Australia, into South Australia and also Tasmania because it's a treatment for Queensland fruit fly. Last week, you heard from the mango industry and its concerns around the potential costs and the challenges growers could face if this ban went ahead. Simon Smith is the president of the NT Farmers Association and says it could really hit growers' hip pockets. My quick back of the envelope calculation is we might be talking, and I think I've heard figures of between 600,000 and a million trays quoted. It might add a cost of things like vapour heat treatment available. That would add $10 a tray and, and concern about quality. Other alternative measures take six weeks. The pre-harvest sprays take six weeks to, to before they're, they're effective. So there's a, a perhaps a four-week lag if they choose to to go down a, a different path. So there'll be a loss, and it's a loss early in that season of the, the prime that, you know, as you are talking about the other day, that high-value fruit. Mm-hmm. It's not catastrophic, but it certainly will cost some of the growers a, a lot of money. So that's the mango industry with that potential suspension of dimethoate. Let's look at avocados now. John Tyus is the CEO of Avocados Australia. John, if this ban was imposed, what impact could it have on the avocado industry? So, well, the main impact for avocados will be for shepherd avocado growers. So shepherds only grown in Queensland uh, and it's available sort of from February to April. So the shepherd growers don't really have much in the way of suitable alternatives. They can uh, use uh, a fumigant, which isn't ideal for the quality of the fruit. So, yeah, it's, it's possible that we won't see any shepherds uh, being transported through to Western Australia or South Australia next year. So if you talk about shepherds, I mean, they come in at a particular time when house avocados aren't typically as available. So could there then be a period of time on WA or South Australian supermarket shelves that we aren't able to get avocados in? Um, possibly. Western Australia supplies house avocados through till sort of late February, March at a stretch. Um, but the supply volume at that time will certainly be declining um, so it could well be that, you know, you're going to be short of avocados in, in WA and in South Australia uh, when, you know, normally the market would be supplied with shepherd. How many growers is this expected to impact and, and sort of how many, how much volume? Oh, look, it's a bit hard to know because we don't know, um, you know, we, we don't know which businesses uh, and how many businesses are, are impacted, but I believe, you know, it's it's a relatively small number of businesses, but it, it's potentially quite a lot of product uh, at that time of the, of the year. So in April, you know, most of the uh, supply is actually 
from shepherd avocados from from Queensland. So it'll certainly uh, impact those growers at, at that time of the year. And shepherd is about 20%, 15, so probably 15% of our um, volume is shepherd avocados. But in April, it's you know almost 100% of our our supply. Other than the the bit of fruit in WA at the at the end of their season, so the impact on Hass uh, growers is is less significant because there is a very suitable alternative for for Hass. There's a uh, hard condition protocol ICA thirty, it's called, where basically um, the fruit the fruit is not susceptible to fruit fly uh, when it's harvested in that hard condition. So we would expect that hash growers that want to supply those those markets that uh, that are in regions that don't have Queensland fruit fly, they will most likely adopt this uh, ICA thirty protocol. So why can't shepherd avocado growers employ the same protocol? Why why hasn't it been sort of brought across to the other variety? Oh, shepherd is a very thin skinned avocado. So you know there is a concern that it could be stung by by um, Queensland fruit fly, whereas the Hass has got a lot of thicker skin. So that's really the main the main difference. On the country, our Michelle Stanley with you, and you're hearing from John Tyus from Avocados Australia. We're talking about the APVMA's posed suspension of the use of dimethoate as a post-harvest dip, which is one of those really important protocols for, in particular, shepherd avocados to be able to get into Western Australia for the treatment or the prevention, I guess, of the spread of Queensland fruit fly. Are you supportive of this move from the APVMA, John Tyus? Oh look, it's I, I, I guess the writing's been on the wall for for a while um, for this product. It, you know, it's very old chemistry. Um, it's not used in many parts of the world, so it's it's not it's not a surprise. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, the the APVMA is there to to do a job and regulate these chemicals and and make sure that the food that we eat is is safe. And the levels that are set have got very large um, margins built in to make sure that we, you know, we don't go anywhere near um, products being unsafe. So so it's a precautionary measure that they've got to do uh, their job. But if the writing has been on the wall and if, if people aren't surprised and, you know, avocado industry, the mango industry has said similar things, why do you think the APVMA is giving it a two-week consultation period and potentially planning to suspend the use within just a couple of weeks? It's not a lot of lead time for the industry. No, it's not. Um, and I guess we we were a bit surprised that we weren't informed earlier um, that there had been changes at, at the APVMA. So the, the, the product um, of concern is not actually dimethoate, it's omethoate, which is a derivative. So once uh, the that chemical is applied to the fruit, it, it degrades and it oxidises to other components, one being omethoate. Uh, and so there was a change in the levels of omethoate um, that were never expected to um, be, uh, you know, be of any any concern. Uh, and so it was a bit of a surprise when we found out a few months ago that um, that you know there were some concerns with levels of omethoate on on fruit, and there was a lot of investigation. Um, so it's a fairly unusual circumstance that we we find ourselves in. But yeah, would have been would have been helpful if we had been informed of the change that APVMA made back in I think it was September last year um, to to those levels.
So we've already got research underway, which is looking at alternatives for Shepherd to manage these market access issues around around QFly. But you know, there's no there's no silver bullet out there at the moment, and we've got to continue to um, search for, for 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 other ways of of managing it, including you know non non chemical options, systems approaches. Um, baiting programs, you know, various bits of technology that perhaps we can combine that will achieve the, the, the outcome that we need. John Tice, thanks for your time on the Country Hour today. Okay, good to talk to you. He's the CEO of Avocados Australia, just talking about the potential impact of the APVMA's proposed ban on the use of dimethoate as a post-harvest dip. That's for fruit with inedible peel. So the avocado and mango industries most likely to be impacted given, given the rules for produce that's imported into WA to prevent that spread of Q fly. The consultation period is open for one more week and if the suspension is brought in at this stage, it's expected to come into place from the 5th of September, so two weeks from now. And as you just heard John Tyus say, it could mean no shepherd avocados on the shelves for Western Australian consumers, which they fill that gap in between the Hass season. It's quarter to one on the Country Hour today. You're with Michelle Stanley for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. It's time to get a bit nutty now. Surely you'll hear from WA's largest walnut grower because he's just started making walnut oil. But first, have you tasted native sandalwood nuts? I haven't, and I don't think many people would have because they're not that tasty. But Western Australian researchers are taking a look at sandalwood nuts to see if they might have some valuable and healthy properties. Dr John Moosinidis is part of the research team, and he says this is an attempt to reduce food waste and increase value for producers. We're looking at the sandalwood nut both as a food product or a food additive, but also transformed into therapeutic products, high-value cosmetic products and nutraceuticals. And to be able to do that, we need to have a very detailed chemical understanding of what's in the kernel uh, and what's in the hull so that when we develop specifications or when we develop products, we have a very deep understanding of the chemistry of those particular materials as we go through the formulation process. What sort of things are you looking at? What sort of uses? The nuts themselves, uh, the kernels, have a high concentration of uh, very interesting fatty acids, and we've identified one as zymenic acid. That's actually well understood in the literature. It's been a subject of a couple of clinical trials and has some very interesting anti-inflammatory effects. So we've developed um, methodology here at Chem Centre to analyse for zymenic acid. And more importantly, the methodology that we're using is intended to be certified under an accreditation scheme here in Australia, uh, so that we can use the data that's generated to support registrations or other data-based kinds of applications for these products in the therapeutic area. So that's, that's one area that we're very um, focused on. The other parts of the nut uh, also contain proteins, oligosaccharides and various other nutritional compounds, in addition to uh, materials that might be useful in both as probiotics but also in the food science industry. Uh, natural surfactants and thickening agents. So we're looking at utilising all elements uh, of the kernel. But we're not stopping there either. Uh, we're having a good look at the hulls once the, uh, the kernel's been extracted from the hull. 
We also take those holes and crush them, uh, convert them into a fairly fine powder um, that has good uses uh, as a cosmetic abrasive, let's say, for, um, for various cosmetic products, but also potentially uh, as a blast medium in sandblasting, uh, as a replacement for sandblasting. So we're looking at uh, all elements of the, of the nut product. What do they taste like, Jordan? Uh, well, personally, they're a little bland from my perspective. Uh, they use they are used at a very small scale in chocolate making, and also they're sweetened up with honey and so forth. So you can find honeyed nuts. You can also find chocolate covered nuts. Eating them by themselves, um, they're quite filling, but the, the taste experience is fairly pedestrian, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> So the value is really in the chemicals that's uh, inside them. What kind of values are you aiming for or what do you think you could achieve? There's about uh, 1,500 tonnes of nuts uh, on the ground per year. So the trees themselves um, start generating nuts in about the third third to fifth year. And like I said, the farmers don't harvest those trees for about 25 years so they can actually get value out of them. So um, to be able to take those 1,500 tonnes per year and convert those into an income would be, of course, you know, very useful for the farmers, but also contribute to a circular economy. In terms of the total value, we're looking at somewhere between 30 and, and 50 million. Uh, and that's based on uh, the kinds of high value, high premium therapeutic and cosmetic products that are likely to come out of this, these particular materials. That's Dr. John Musadinas, and he's the Manager of Research and Innovation at Chem Centre WA. He was chatting with Lucinda Jose about research on sandalwood nuts they're doing alongside the Fighting Food Waste CRC. It's 10 to 1 on the Country Hour. On the topic of nuts, a farmer in Western Australia's southwest is also looking at making money out of so-called waste nuts. David Williams is Western Australia's biggest and possibly only commercial walnut grower. He has orchards in Manjimup and Nanup and has just started trying to produce oil from second grade walnuts. It's got a, a rich flavour but it, it is also a subtle f- flavour. There's two ways you can do it. You can leave the fines in. That will give you a much nuttier flavour and, and a deeper, honeyer colour or If the processing is to take the fines out, then it becomes subtler and a paler liquid. But it's beautiful to cook with up to about 160 degrees, virtually anything. So uh, our real thrust over the next three to six months is to um, press the kernel that we've put aside for oil. Unfortunately, we have to send that to Queensland to do it. Uh, We don't have a nut processing facility in WA, but... We hope to hit the market pre-Christmas with our oil. So that's my real focus in the short-term future. What made you decide to to get into doing walnut oil apart from your, you know, organic walnuts? A lot of the product, and, and I showed you in the processing how much is lost in terms of little bits and pieces, but it's still very good nuts. And sometimes the colour isn't up to our premium grade. And, and we do have chef's pieces as well for baking, but it still leaves a vast amount of product that doesn't have a home but that's all suitable for oil and even a bit of shell doesn't matter in fact it 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 assists the pressing process to have a bit of uh, shell there so it means that we've we've got a much greater use of our harvest and um, you know we're, we're branching into another area where you know people can use our walnuts in another capacity 
you also put your shells back into the farm as well. There really isn't a lot of waste in this in this whole process, is there? Well, I hope not. Um, you know, we're not perfectly sustainable. You know, we grow half the farm organic. We use solar power. But, you know, we're a long way off perfect. But in terms of the trees, the shell and our pruning, we have to prune because... Trees, the three things trees need, the inputs that we've talked about, the food, water and daylight. So we need judicious pruning to allow daylight to um, maximise the yield and also pruning so that our tractors and vehicles can go past. So all of that pruning and all of the shell from the cracking process, we treat it with some beneficial biologicals and back into the orchard. So we're giving back to the trees the nitrogen and the calcium and the potassium that they've lost as part of the harvest process. You're seeing a bit of an imp- impact from the floods that we've had on the east coast in terms of uh, the walnut producers there. You're getting a little bit more interest in what you're doing here in the southwest. Is that right? Yeah, it appears to be the case. We've had a couple of new clients come to us from the eastern seaboard and uh, yeah, they've uh, had difficulty uh, getting some product. These things happen in farming. I, uh, a couple of years ago, I mentioned to you, we had a freak hailstorm at the end of December. The old timers in Manjimup had never seen anything like it. And uh, instead of an average of 90-odd tonne, we uh, got 12 tonne, which is pretty, uh, well, decimating, really. You supply mainly for WA, but you do have some, you know, East Coast customers, and that could potentially increase? We, we are very strongly West Australian and we supply extensively through Perth and, and to some degree in the southwest as well, of course. We supply in shell and kernel, both conventional and organic. And, yeah, more and more, particularly the organic, there's a, a demand from the east. We set ourselves out to branch into organic to create something of a niche market. And, uh, yeah, I I think that will grow. There's a limit to what we can produce without um, convention, uh, without the size of our processing centre. Probably our limit is 150 tonne max, and and maybe that's really pushing the envelope. We are the largest commercial, and uh, I'm not aware of any other commercial walnut grower in WA. Uh, There are other walnut growers, but they'll be small cottage industry scale. Western Australia has a bit to go in terms of a nut production centre. The climate is right. Uh, The reason we got into walnuts is um, where we are latitude-wise is the flip side of all of the great walnut areas of the Northern Hemisphere, California, Iran, Turkey, China, Europe, France, Italy, Spain. It's all that uh, meridian going across the north, so we're the flip side of that. There are almonds... Uh, pecans have grown, macadamias, all in WA. But I, I think there's uh, some room for growth uh, because, I, you know, we've got a wonderful uh, climate and it is suited for nut growing. That was David Williams. He's the Managing Director at Omega Walnut, speaking with Ellie Honeybone about how he's just started to focus on producing walnut oil from imperfect nuts from around 22,000 trees in orchards near Manjimup and Nanup. It's five to one on the Country Hour. Earlier we were chatting about the proposed suspension of dimethoate as a post-harvest dip and how that could see shepherd avocados unable to grace WHO 
shelves next season because it's a key treatment for growers to be able to send those fruit into WA. Guy has been in touch to say, as a consumer, I'd rather occasionally miss out on being able to buy an avocado or mango rather than eating one that's been dipped in dimethoate. Sorry to tell you, Guy, if you've eaten a mango from interstate or a shepherd avocado on shelves here in WA, you've more than likely eaten one that has been dipped in dimethoate. That's what's currently being done, but it is being proposed to be suspended. You can get in touch on 0448 922604. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. The federal government releases a new register for problem gamblers to ban themselves from online and phone betting. The Wallaroos speak out. Australia's female rugby players call for equality amid demands for greater investment in the women's game. And Licence to Drive, a community-led program to help remote Indigenous drivers take to the road in the bush. Those stories are more from right across the country and around the globe coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. That coming up just after the news at one o'clock and you will be off to Muche very shortly to check in on the results of the cattle sale. But let's talk about cattle in central Australia. They're predominantly used for beef production in that area, but one station is getting into dairy and making cheese. Mount Riddick Station is 200 kilometres northeast of Alice Springs. It has a handful of dairy cows whose milk is being processed to create a variety of salty cheeses. Lani Ryan is the station cook who usually milks the cows and makes the cheeses. Uh, so we've got triple cream brie, camembert, the halloumi, the feta. I think there's havarti back here. Yeah, and then quag down here, which is like a, the traditional cream cheese. Yeah, so we've got, I believe it's three Frisians and a jersey. And every morning when they first have their calves, they need to be milked daily. And then obviously as the calves get older and they drink more milk, the milking process gets backed off to maybe once every two days and then once every couple of days. And we've just got a machine where you put, there's four cups to put on each teat and that sucks all the milk, or not all the milk, but sucks the milk out and then carry it in buckets like the olden days up to the kitchen where we put it in a big pot and pasteurise it. That is Mount Riddick Station cook Lani Ryan with a tour of a dairy, probably Australia's most remote dairy, no doubt. Uh, it's just a couple of minutes away from one. Now, there was a cattle sale at the Mouche sale yards this morning. The final tally was 682, which included 66 calves. So numbers were down about 200 on last week. Terry Birkin's been there all morning. Hi, Terry. Can you run through the details, please? Loan numbers continue today with just over 600 head in the live weight sale with local and partial categories evenly represented. Local cattle were showing more weight and finish this week and large lines of partial weaner bulls and heifers attracting interest from live exporters on calves with better breeding and smoother coats. Most regular buyers are actively bidding with the market remaining firm to last week's pricing. Local villa steers heading back to paddock started at 200 cents and in feedlot specs up to 322 cents, while local villa heifers sold up to 258 cents a kilo. Little interest was shown in plain condition pastoral villa heifer starting at 50 cents, but cows in live export specs averaged 215 cents and reaching up to 258 cents a kilo. Local yearling steers under 330 kilos selling mainly to feedlots realising 332 cents, while heavier steers made up to 300 cents and pastoral steers averaged 250 cents a kilo. 
Local yearling heifers sold up to 280 cents, while their pastoral sisters range from 80 cents to 200 cents a kilo. Grown steers averaged 248 cents, while grown heifers returned 184 cents to 240 cents a kilo. Store cows were limited in numbers, selling from 50 cents for very plain bodies up to 180 cents with better frames, while medium to prime cows returned 180 to 236 cents a kilo. Young bulls selling to live export sold up to 322 cents, while slaughter heavy bulls ranged from 190 cents to 222 cents a kilogram. Thanks very much for that, Terry. It's one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.